listening to Clary Vacation on Springfield's Talk 1041. Hey everybody, it's Clarification. Welcome to another weekend in the Ozarks. I'm your humble host, James Clary, along with Sarah Meyer at the board. We're excited that you're with us. We appreciate your support. We do get your texts and emails, and you can always go to ksgf.com, click the link, and click shows and or podcasts, and you'll find Clarification, and we appreciate it. I'm going to tell you a story today. I know how much you guys love stories, but I do know that our listeners, like myself, are looking around at our country and going, what the heck is going on? How is it possible that our country is in as bad a shape as it is? Now, we know that Donald Trump certainly started something that accelerated the decline of our country. You know, when Trump was elected, and I I really do believe that it completely caught the powers that be off guard. They really thought, which tells you how dumb they are. They don't really, they're not as smart as they'd have you believe, but it caught them completely off guard. So today... Like other shows in the past, we're going to take a brief glimpse into some history. The story I'm going to tell you is about a gentleman named Norman Dodd. And the first time I came across this gentleman was probably 10, 12 years ago. And I have mentioned him on the program before, but today we're going to go in depth as to what Mr. Dodd had to say about our country and why it is that we're in the trouble that we're in. There's a historian videographer named G. Edward Griffith. Now, Mr. Griffith made a documentary or he did an interview with Norman Dodd. And most of the source material, we will put this in the show links, and you'll be able to watch the interview yourself. But I'm going to give you a synopsis of what Norman Dodd said to Mr. Griffith. So they start out the interview, and Norman Dodd explains that he went to Andover boarding school And then he went to Yale. And the reason that's relevant is that you probably know that the powers that be, the cabal, the I mean, the CIA ranks are full of Yale, Harvard and Columbia graduates. This is the pool that these people are drawn from. They're seen as the best and the brightest that our country has to offer. And in many ways, there are Uh, another reason that. Norman going to Yale is important is that the main gist of this story has to do with our university system. I mean, we all know that the universities and colleges in America are dominated by left-wing ideology. Some of the craziest nut jobs that you see on your little screen on your phone, on TikTok, YouTube, Rumble, whatever, are university professors. 
You've all seen the pink mohawked, masculine, gender unknown person screaming about your children having no rights. You know, there was a big march in Canada recently, uh, Parents March for Children's Rights, and the outrage, particularly from university professors, was unbelievable. Basically claiming that your parents don't have rights, children have rights. <clears throat> That's called collectivism. It's communism. The whole theme of this show is about communism. It's about Marxism. So, Back to the story. Mr. Dodd graduated from Andover Academy, then went to Yale, and then he graduated from Yale, very near the top of his class. In other words, this was an incredibly bright gentleman. He didn't know what he wanted to do, so he got into business. <clears throat> he was hired by a bank, and he was actually hired by the J.P. Morgan now J.P. Morgan Chase, but at the time it was this J.P. Morgan Bank in New York. Now, he was a very young man in his early mid-20s, and he worked in the bank for a couple years. And while he was at the bank in 1929, he witnessed the collapse of the entire banking structure in the United States, which was the Great Depression. It was the, the fall of the, the Black Friday, Black Monday, the fall of the stock, mar stock market in 1929 that led to the Great Depression. And he was in the middle of this panic. He was confronted by superiors. Now, he's a young kid and he couldn't believe the president, vice president of the bank came to him and asked him because he was considered one of the brightest in the bank. Norm, what do we do now? And he was kind of shocked that they were looking to him for an answer. And he was he was 30 and he had no more right to have the answer. This is what he said. I had no more right to have an answer to that question than the man in the moon. However, I did manage to say, gentlemen, take this experience as proof that there's something you do not know about banking and you'd better go find out what that something is and act accordingly. So his superiors took him aside and said, Norman, we've decided you're right. There's something we did wrong or we would have foreseen this crash. We want you to go find out what it is. So he spent the next year and a half looking into what happened, what led to the collapse in 1929. And when he came back to his superiors, the basic the summation of his report was they had abandoned sound banking principles, that they gave loans that didn't have appropriate collateral, that were high-risk loans. Does this sound familiar, 2008? Remember the crash in 2008? So anyways, the, the, the heads of the Morgan Bank were like, well, this is great, Norm. We want you to reorganize this bank however you can. Now, this is a 30-something. He's like, I can't believe I'm giving this much power. So he began work on how to reorganize the bank and take them back to sound banking principles so they'd never crash again. After a couple weeks, they wouldn't allow him to do any more work. And they said, Norm, just enjoy yourself. Just go play golf. You'll be vice president in a year. And a few years after that, you can retire with a wonderful pension. They basically bought him off. They didn't have any interest in reorganizing. Because the same people that we're going to talk about who infiltrate the university system had already infiltrated the banking system in the United States. Now, I have to remind you, the Bolshevik Revolution happened in 1913. 
That was the first mass takeover of a large country by the communists. Karl Marx and, and Lenin and the Soviet Union fell in 1913 after a many years long and bloody revolution. And the communists won in the Soviet Union. We seem to think that communists were, you know, isolated in these pockets. Red China, Soviet Union, North Vietnam, North Korea. No, they've been in America all along. I mean, there's a very active group right now, the American Communist Society. So anyway, these bankers had already been infiltrated. The crash of 1929 could have been avoided. Remember, the, the other thing that happened in 1913, coincidentally, besides the Bolshevik Revolution, the Federal Reserve was founded in 1913. Now, the Federal Reserve was founded with the sole intent of avoiding economic disasters like the one that happened in 1907. So there was an economic crash in 1907, 1913, excuse me, 1913, the Federal Reserve was created by a bunch of dark suits that did it in the middle of the night on Jekyll Island. And there's a, uh, actually G. Edward Griffith wrote a book about Jekyll Island and the founding of the Fed, which really began the destruction of America's free market economic system. We could talk, we'll do, we will do shows on the Fed. But for now, just realize that the Fed was created the same time as the Bolshevik Revolution. And when we come back, we'll continue the story of Norman Dodd. Everybody, it's clarification. Welcome back. There's a little 1920s music for you. We are talking history today. We're talking about how America has become under the influence of the Marxists. And I'm giving you a little background because I think it's important to understand the history because we didn't get where we are today by happenstance. And it hasn't happened just since Trump was president. It didn't happen in the 2000s or the 90s or the 80s. This stuff goes back to the turn of the last century, to the 1900s. So we were telling you the story about Norman Dodd, who had figured out that the banks in the United States, in collusion with the Federal Reserve, allowed the crash in 1929 to happen. They knew it was coming. They allowed it to happen. <clears throat> remember, and you may not remember this, but as a result of the crash in 1929, a new president was elected who served four terms. I'm sure you know who that was. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Roosevelt enacted the most socialist, progressive, let's call it what it is, communist light policies that our country had ever seen. This is what is called, and I know we've talked about it before, the Hegelian dialect, that there's action, reaction, solution. So the, the bad parties create an issue, a problem, and society is freaking out over this problem, and everybody reacts horribly. Then the same people that created the problem offer you the solution. You could take COVID as an example. We now know the Pentagon, the U.S. Department of Defense, created COVID. 
they did all the funding of the Wuhan lab. Not all of it. The Chinese communists did part of it. Once again, there's ties with the Communist Party of China. And then they offer the solution in the form of a vaccine lockdowns, mass mandates. This stuff goes on constantly. 9-11. We know, at the very least, it was foreknowledge. The government knew these attacks were coming. They admitted it later on. What was the solution? The Patriot Act. What do all these things have in common? They take your personal liberties. The Patriot Act opened up the door for the intelligence apparatchik in the United States to surveil every American. Remember James Clapper famously lying to Congress about mass surveillance? So anyway, I get fired up on this because it is so obvious once you begin to study the history. So back to the Norman Dodd story, Norman Dodd finally resigned from the bank because he realized that these bankers were playing him. They knew the crash was coming. They said, oh, Norman, you go out and fix it. And they just wouldn't let him work. So he resigned. Eventually, he he worked in various branches of the financial field, uh, worked on the stock exchange, but he was blackballed from specifically working at any bank. Now, why is that? He had a sterling record. He was very highly thought of because he spoke the truth. And the bankers, the truth of it was that the big banks, even back in 1929, 1930, were colluding to control the American economy and the American culture in a way that led us down this road of Marxism. Now, they'll call it progressivism. They'll call it socialism. But don't kid yourself. It's Marxism. So there was a congressman named Harold Reese. Now, Harold Reese was a Republican congressman who hired Norman Dodd to become the director of research for the Reese Committee. Now, the Reese Committee was a congressional committee that was carrying, was operating, carrying out instructions embodied in a resolution that the House had passed, which was to investigate the activities of foundations as to whether or not these activities could justifiably be labeled un-American. Now, the Reese Committee, you got to remember in the 50s, you've all heard of uh, Eugene McCarthy, the Senator McCarthy and the Red Scare. Now, history paints McCarthy as this horrible man who unjustly accused a lot of Americans of being communists or communist sympathizers, when in reality... McCarthy was spot on. At, the, at this time in the 50s, the communists were really, they didn't hide things very well. I mean, we had actual Marxists at the time working, you know, dozens working in the State Department, working in the, in the intelligence agencies. And Senator McCarthy was, and uh, really Hollywood was almost completely overrun by the Marxists. So the Reese Committee was formed specifically 
to look in to foundations. When I say tax uh, foundations, I'm talking about tax exempt foundations, what we call NGOs, non-governmental organizations today. And the main ones were the Carnegie Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and uh, others similar to those. The idea was that these groups had been funding activities that the Reese Committee suspected were un-American. So in the, de- in the details of this are astounding. So one of the things they had to decide, well, what is un-American? So they defined it that it was a determination to affect changes in the country by unconstitutional means. And you might think, well, that's what they do all the time. I mean, look at the J6 and, you know, the all of the, the things that have happened in the last 30 years. They don't use the Constitution. But at that time... The actual, the Constitution was given a whole lot more respect. I don't think our intel agencies respect the Constitution at all. They don't care about the Fourth Amendment. You know, look, you just had a governor say that the Second Amendment doesn't apply in New Mexico, and she threw it out the window. But at that time, these NGOs were trying to influence the culture and society of America without following the Constitution. So... They had to, there was an effect to educate the country. The effect that these NGOs were trying to have was to orient the educational system away from the support of the principles embodied in the Declaration of Independence and implemented in the Constitution. And the task was to move the educational system away from these principles to principles that more effectively lined up with Karl Marx, with Marxism. And you would say, well, how are they going to do that? And that's where this story just gets insane. Because the first, one of the first foundations that Norman Dodd was sent to investigate was the Ford Foundation. And a gentleman who was president of the Ford Foundation named Rowan Gaither. So Norman Dodd had contacted Mr. Gaither, president of the Ford Foundation, and said he would like to come and have a chat. So Gaither had sent him a letter that said, when you're in New York, Mr. Dodd, please come to my office. And this is what Gaither said to him when they actually had that meeting. He said, Mr. Dodd, we've asked you to come up here today to the Ford Foundation because we thought that possibly off the record, you would tell us why Congress is interested in the activities of foundations such as ourselves. Mr. Gaither went on, Mr. Dodd, all of us have had a hand in making of policies here, have had experience with either the OSS 
or the Europe, European Economic Administration after the war. Now, you have to understand the OSS was the precursor to the CIA. So what the president of Ford Foundation was saying that all of the people that ran that foundation were former intel. Former CIA, even though it wasn't called the CIA at that time. He said, we still operate under such directives. Would you like to know the substance of these directives? And so, of course, Norman Dodd replied, well, yeah, I, I would very much like to know. Gaither President of Ford Foundation said, we are here to operate in response to these directives, the substance of which we shall use our grant making power so as to alter life in the United States that it can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. Let me repeat that. The president of one of the most influential and powerful NGOs told this congressional investigator that the goal of their organization was to change culture and life in the United States such that the U.S. could merge with communist Russia, the Soviet Union. Now, you can imagine the shock that this congressional investigator had when he was told that this guy was just totally upfront and honest about their goals. And the story gets even wilder when I explain the details of Norman Dodd when we come right back. Blackbird, blackbird, singing the blues all day. Hey, everybody, it's clarification. Yeah, we're taking you back to the early 1900s, and now we fast forward to the 1950s. And Norman Dodd is the director of research for Harold Reese, a congressman who ran the Reese Committee that was looking into the activities of the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, all these NGOs that they felt, they, these, these Republican congressmen felt that these NGOs were engaged in un-American activities. And before the break, I just told you that this Rowan Martin, who was head of the Ford Foundation, specifically said, look, our goal is to change the United States so much that we can merge with the Soviet Union. They were out and out completely frank with what they wanted to do. So the head of the Ford Foundation was honest and open with Mr. Dodd that their goal was certainly un-American if they wanted to change the culture of the United States so that we could merge with the Soviet Union. Now, it wasn't just the Ford Foundation. The next group that Norman Dodd went to see was the Carnegie Endowment. And it actually, it wasn't Dodd personally that studied the Carnegie Endowment. It was someone that he hired. He hired a young lady named Catherine Casey, who was also a very highly educated person. And he hired her to help him in this investigative research. So the experience that she had at the Carnegie Endowment for International peace was pretty unbelievable. So when he, Norman Dodd, 
and uh, Catherine Casey went to the Carnegie Endowment. He was met by a guy named Dr. Joseph Johnson, who was the successor to Alger Hiss. You might remember that name. He was tried and found to be a, uh, a spy. So this Joseph Johnson said, we have your letter and we understand that Congress is investigating uh, un-American activities by these foundations. And this Joseph Johnson said, what does Congress specifically want to know? We we're completely open about what our uh, intentions are. And uh, Norman Dodd said, well, we want to know exactly what are the activities of this foundation and specifically what are you up to as regards to American culture and politics? And this Johnson guy actually offers Catherine Casey and Norman Dodd access to their board meetings. Now, at this point, Dodd is like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, he had a good idea of what the minutes would would contain because they had been looking into these foundations and realized that they all were Marxist sympathizers. Now, you got to understand, these are the biggest endowments in America. These NGOs control the flow of money to almost every aspect of culture in America. And here, this president of the Carnegie Foundation is offering to open up their board meetings. So he gets this Catherine Casey and he says, okay, look, they're going to open up the, the minutes to all the board meetings. And I want you to go read them and write a report. So she went all the way back to 1908 when the Carnegie Foundation began operations. And I think it's it's probably important to note that a lot of these foundations were started uh, by Rockefeller had one of the first ones, and there was a specific reason they were started. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, J.D. Rockefeller was considered one of the most evil men in America. He controlled the oil and he specifically controlled the railroads that the oil was shipped on. He was so powerful that the tentacles of his office went into every local state, local county, city politician across America. People loathed this guy. He was skewered in the press. And some marketing genius, and the guy really was a genius, came up to Rockefeller and said, "How? here's how you can change your perception in public. Start a tax-free foundation and start giving your money away to worthy causes. And so Rockefeller did it. Of course, he didn't give all his money away. He gave a very small percentage away. But pretty soon, papers were printing about the good work that Rockefeller was doing in many areas of our society that need help. So he went from being this vilified robber bearing to a knight in shining armor, the rich man coming to help the poor. So all of these foundations grew out of that same idea that these people that ran them were perceived as rich and greedy and corrupt and if they started these tax-free foundations that they could totally 
change the perception. So that's what they did. So back to the Carnegie Foundation. While Catherine Casey was reading the board meetings, she realized this is what she found out. So in 1914, World War I had broken out. And the board of Carnegie realized that they must control the education in the United States. They realized it's a big task. So they approached the Rockefeller Foundation that, with the suggestion that the portion of education which could be considered domestic to be handled by the Rockefeller and the portion that was international be handled by Carnegie. They then decide the key to success of these two operations lay in the alteration of the teaching of American history. And this is the key to this whole thing. They knew that if they could change the way that history is taught, they could change all public perceptions about current events. As a matter of fact, the Reese Committee hearings, I'm talking to you, the listeners, the Reese Committee hearings were one of the most significant events in American history. Have you ever been taught about it? Did they teach you this in sixth grade history? Is Norman Dodd, the chief investigator for Harold Reese and his committee, is Norman Dodd in your son's 10th grade history book? No. He's never mentioned. Are any of these foundations, Carnegie, Rockefeller, Ford, are any of them mentioned as wanting to take America to a more Marxist lifestyle? Is that mentioned anywhere in history? No, it's not. And that's the point. And that's why we need to talk about it. That's why you need to know this, because this all ends up getting us exactly to where we are today. So how exactly were they going to do this? What they did is they started approaching the most prominent teachers of American history. Uh, there was a historian named Charles Byrd and Mary Byrd. They approached the history, history professors at Harvard, at Yale, and they came up with a plan to completely change the direction of, at first, history in universities and then the whole university system. And I'll tell you exactly how they did that when we come back. Yep. Hey, everybody. That's the last time you heard music like that. Well, it's been a long time because it's about 120 years old. We're talking about the history of tax-exempt foundations in America and the Marxist revolution that they, they really started in this country, which I know is, is kind of hard to believe. But we will put some things in the show notes. But I'd like to remind you to look up Norman Dodd, D-O-D-D, Look up Harold Reese, Congressman Harold Reese, and the Reese Committee hearings. So when we left off, we talked about how Reese had gone to the uh, Guggenheim Foundation and several of these NGOs, and that they had decided 
that in order to change the American society, the Carnegie, Ford, Guggenheim, Rockefeller, that they needed to change the way that history was taught. So as I started to tell you, they approached some of the most notable historians of the day and said, would you be willing to change the way that you teach history? Well, of course, these were people of principle, like Mary Bird. She turned them down flat. He said, what do you create? With history, we teach it the way that it was. We don't change it. So what these these crooks realized is that they needed to get their own source, their own stable, if you will, of historians. So they began approaching universities. And this is a, a simplification of what they did. But say they approached Yale and they say, Yale University, we would like to give you a million dollar endowment for your history department. And of course, the president of Yale is going to jump up and down and say, yes, please. There's just one condition. We will be in charge of hiring the professors that are going to teach history. And that's exactly what they did. Now, when, when Reese's person, Catherine Casey, who he assigned to go read the board meeting notes going back to 1908 all, all the way through 1953. He realized that this, uh, the, the president of the Ford Foundation at the time had no idea what was in those notes. When this Catherine Casey read this and uncovered that these foundations had paid off American universities to get their own stable of historians. And they went further than that. They actually had interviews and seminars in England. They did it across the pond, across the Atlantic, because they didn't want people here to know what they were doing. And they would interview these prospective university professors and if they were agreeable to teaching history from a progressivist, collectivist, Marxist viewpoint, if they were agreeable to doing that, then they were hired. If, on the other hand, they wanted to teach straight history, American history, beginning with the Declaration of Independence, talking about the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, et cetera, et cetera, they weren't hired. As a matter of fact... So much of this that you see in today's society is subtle. So they hired these history professors. Soon Yale, Columbia, Harvard, Stanford, UCLA, all of these university history teachers begin to be hired by the foundations that gave them grants. But it didn't stop there. You have to understand this was in 1953. So remember, we're talking about the Reese Committee hearings. These were hearings being done by Congress. So you might ask, well, what happened? Did, did Harold Reese get to the bottom of it? No. Harold Reese was eventually told to shut down his committee. And it was pressure. The money applied by these NGOs 
remember this was 1953, the height of McCarthyism. Eugene McCarthy was pointing out communists all in all aspects of society. Harold Reese's committee, the Reese committee, was looking into communist, they called it at the time, they called it un-American activities, but let's call it what it is. These were Marxists who were taking over American universities. So the Reese committee was eventually shut down and Norman Dodd was once again without a job. Now he went on to become, he was very successful, had a successful career and, and retired, but he didn't tell this story until years later and it's not that it's not that he wouldn't have he wouldn't he wasn't trying to cover it up it's that the Reese committee you'll never see anything about the Reese committee in our history books because of the very thing we've been talking about this whole show our history has been rewritten it's been rewritten specifically by universities who have a Marxist agenda. I don't, I don't think anyone can look at our society today without realizing there's something deeply wrong. And particularly, like we talked about in the first segment, when you see these university professors, I mean, these people seem insane, particularly to those of us who are a little older. And yes, I'm a little older. I was born in 1960 could do the math as I'm going to my 45th high school reunion this weekend. But for those of us who grew up in the 60s and the 70s, there were certain things that were just taken for granted. The Bill of Rights. I mean, it was sacrosanct. The, the jurisprudence, our justice system. I mean, it you know, in my mind, it was always at the very least, no matter what these intel agencies, no matter what the police do, at least, at least, if you're innocent, we have a justice system that will allow you to get justice. It's not true. It's not true anymore. Do you think those January 6th defendants are getting justice? You think the guy that just got sentenced to... Uh, can't remember that guy's name. Sorry, you probably the Proud Boys guy wasn't even at J six. Got twenty years in prison. He wasn't even there. Do you think any conservative Republican get a fair trial in D.C.? But but I digress. We're talking about this was this has been an incremental takeover of not just the university system. Today we've highlighted how they did it in the university system. It was these mass amounts of money, and it always leads back to money. These university professors, if you, if you went back to 1950 and you could take a time machine and you did a poll of university professors at the time and you said, would you consider yourself more conservative or more liberal? You would find that it was evenly split 50-50. And I've looked at those polls. It's absolutely true. Now, if you went to... What is that lovely university in our town, Missouri State? And you did a poll of all the instructors there, or you go to Mizzou, or you go to any university, 
even in the reddest of red states today and did a poll, would you consider yourself more conservative or liberal? Would you agree more with the globalist agenda or the populist agenda? Do you tend to vote more for Democrat or Republican? You're going to find overwhelmingly that our universities are staffed by very left-leaning individuals. And that's the whole point of this show is to explain how it happened. It was an intentional takeover going back to the, the 50s and even earlier than that. I didn't get really get into some of the other things that were found. You've got to watch this interview, the Norman Dodd interview. I mean, one of the foundations literally... One of the the most money they spent was to keep America in a continual state of war because they knew that public policy can most easily be affected and changed when we are in a state of war. Now think about that for a minute. Put that in contrast to the last 20, 30 years of what's going on in this country. It all goes back to 9-11. That was, that was, what, 22 years ago. We went to war. And you remember how we all, rah, rah, let's do this. And slowly, our rights were eroded away. These, these people have been doing this for over 100 years. We talked, I think it was two shows ago, maybe three, about Yuri Beshinov, the Russia KGB spy. And, you know, the famous quote by Nikita Khrushchev said, we will take America without ever firing a shot. Look, that's the point of this show is to say this. And we need to call it out. Here's the deal. We cannot rest on platitudes and on Twitter posts and say, well, you know, I don't agree with the left. Uh, We really need to get back to more of our republic's founding principles. No, what we need to say, not these people are leftists, not that they're liberals, they're freaking Marxists. They are communists. And I don't care. I don't care if I sound like Eugene McCarthy. You know, if you go back and look at the history of McCarthy, McCarthy has been proven out that almost everything he said, everyone that he pointed out as being communist has turned out to be true. But were you taught that? No. Why? Because the history has been whitewashed. We were taught, and I guarantee you, I can ask Sarah if she remembers any of her history about Eugene McCarthy. She was taught he was a bad guy. And at the very least, if people don't really know, they've heard the term McCarthyism and they associate it with something evil or bad in their mind. Why is that? He wasn't a bad guy. He was trying to save the republic from a Marxist takeover. And instead, these historians that I just gave you the history as to how they were hired by Guggenheim, Ford, Rockefeller Foundation, Carnegie Foundation, hired their own staff of history. Now, you know, it didn't stop at history. Then it went to sociology, to law, particularly law school. Our our justice system is full of Marxist light jurists. And that's the truth. 
Hey, coming up in October, it's going to be all esoteric and paranormal in the month of October. It's clarification, and we'll start that next week. I'm James Clary. See you next time.